Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have as my guest, Jill Robbins, who is the founder and president of Business Fierce. Jill, would you mind giving us a quick 90-second introduction to your background and how you got to where you are? Yes. So I spent 20 years in the corporate world being sold to by the biggest companies around the world. And I saw a gap in skills and aptitude just in terms of those people who were managing those accounts, selling to those accounts, and knew that I could help improve that skill set. I'm also an entrepreneur. So while in the corporate world, I signed the front of the check rather than the back of the check as my husband and I grew and sold businesses. So that also gives me a very different perspective, as well as writing a children's book. Excellent. Well, let's start with the children's book. What inspired it? My son and our 140-pound dog inspired the children's book. (laughs) That's a big dog. Yes, English (laughs) Mastiff. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, that is a big dog. Excellent. So I take it the dog took you for a walk. She does regularly. Yes. (laughs) Excellent. So let's kick off with the million dollar question. Why is it that sales and procurement are so often at loggerheads and in an adversarial position when if they actually had their brains on, they'd work in collaboration and partnership? Yeah, unfortunately, Marcus, I I think it's the kind of age-old stereotype that procurement is the bad guy and that they only care about the price. And, you know, there's this tension and there's, frankly, it's a pissing match between sales and procurement, and it does not have to be. Really, procurement sees things across the enterprise that many other functions do not see. They see how processes work or they don't work. They see value chain connectivity. So, you know, sales really needs to cultivate that relationship and play by the rules um, rather than going around procurement or thinking, hey, I only need to work with procurement when I'm negotiating a contract. It's really quite the opposite. They can be your biggest advocate if you know how to sell and you know how to articulate your value proposition. Okay, well, let's start with that. Let's start with how to articulate your value proposition in a way that procurement values. Yeah, so it's really about doing your research. You know, so if you're selling to a publicly traded company, you should be listening to earnings calls. You should be reading press releases. You should be asking questions about what's going on in the business. What's the biggest problem that they're facing today, whether that's in the specific department that you're selling to or across the enterprise? That will really give you insight into how you can sell your product or your solution into the business. You know, I call it vanilla selling. Not every sales pitch should be the same. You should tailor it to the business that you are selling into. And what is it that drives procurement behavior? (laughs) Oh, that's... um, We we have an hour. Yes. (laughs) You know, procurement historically is very very tactical. 
measured on, you know, savings contributed versus top line impact or productivity. So the old metrics, I feel ill-incentivized procurement and really gave the department and the professionals a bad reputation, if you will. And some of the best talent in the organization sits in procurement. And, you know, I, I think that the sooner that sales can realize that they can work alongside procurement rather than be butting heads or rather than working around or going upwards, because as soon as you go up the organization and then you're selling and then it comes down to procurement to negotiate the deal, you're sub-optimizing that relationship with procurement and you may not be included in future bid opportunities as a result of those behaviors. Okay, let me challenge you on this because certainly a lot of my clients, uh, even now, are still coming up against um, procurement professionals who are really focused on screwing uh, suppliers down. They uh, try to commoditize. How can you identify whether you have a modern procurement professional or you're dealing with one of the dinosaurs? Yeah, you know, I I think it's really about asking those open-ended questions and learning. So, you know, even if you do have a dinosaur, that dinosaur may not be bad. They, again, may have been rewarded for those behaviors. So you can manipulate, if you will, and I hate that word, but if you educate yourself and ask, you know, those open-ended questions about how things are working today, if you've sold to them before, what you have learned from that relationship, because oftentimes these suppliers know more about the business than what's actually going on in the business and the people working within the business. So use that to your advantage. The forward-thinking ones, you know, of course it's, it's much easier, but I would not write off the dinosaurs because usually they, they know a lot about what's going on in the business. And if you ask the right questions, and you listen, they're willing to open their kimono and tell you about what's going on. So at what point in the life cycle of a vendor-buyer relationship does it make sense to engage with the procurement professionals? Earlier the better. Earlier the better. I mean, I think the sooner you can cultivate that relationship, the better off you will be from a longevity perspective. Okay. And if there's nothing there for you to sell at the moment, is that too soon to engage with the procurement team? No, because you can learn about what the business priorities are in the specific department you're selling to, or if you have an enterprise-wide solution, they have those insights into business strategy around those priorities. So I'd say it's not too soon. But again, it's about listening and doing your homework. Don't just go with a solution if the organization is not ready for it. So don't be a used car salesman when it's not time for you to sell that that used car with rust under the hood. Learn about the organization so that you can truly be a valued business partner and not be a vendor who's selling hot dogs at a baseball game. One of the things I'm teaching my clients to do, which I picked up off Anthony Anarino, is do research on trends within an industry or a marketplace and look at the competitive landscape 
and mm-hmm. see where your prospect organization fits. And it's proving very successful at the sea level to engage there. Would that be a strategy that you would welcome as a procurement professional as well? Yeah, so definitely, Marcus. I think knowing your competitive landscape and marketplace trends, industry trends are table stakes. If you don't know that, then you should not be selling. And I think really where you can have a competitive advantage is having all of that information and then marrying it with the dynamics going on within your customer's organization, doing your homework, understanding their competitive landscape, what challenges they're up against. You know, if they're a purpose-driven company, how can you align to that? You know, there are many angles and tactics you can take. You know, if they have gone through acquisitions, how can you then help them better integrate businesses, better sell their products, you know, or productivity-wise, if it's an IT solution, you know, how is that solution automating processes, streamlining, improving, you know, top-line growth? So, you know, there are different angles you can take. It really just, it depends on the solution, but you're right. It, I think you have to have that baseline understanding of what's going on in your industry and what the competition is doing. And to pick up on Jill's point, one of the strategies that we've been finding really successful is to understand the customer or the prospect's competitive landscape, do an analysis of that and identify gaps in either their proposition or understand the weakness in the strength of the competition that they have and work your way through um, the competition to understand how you can offer some form of competitive advantage or some insight that will allow both the procurement team and the executive teams to be able to get ahead of the competition. Because 60% of purchase cycles end up in the status quo. No decision. Now, that's your biggest competitor out there. And if you're not aware of that, then you will fundamentally fall flat because three quarters of the remaining 40% end up going to the vendor that destabilizes the current position, helps them to recognize that staying stuck actually will either be harmful or will put them at a disadvantage. Helps them understand that staying stuck, there's a cost. It's not free. Just because they've spent money on a previous solution doesn't mean it's free. And the single biggest driver that I've found that causes companies to stick with the status quo, once you've done that, and told those stories, is that you don't create enough white space between you and everybody else. So it all sounds the same. And so you think, well, sod it, just stay with what I've got. And the fourth piece of that equation is being able to allay the future anticipated fear, regret, and blame of making a poor decision. And so you need to have a battery of good customer heroes journey stories where people just like the prospect you're talking to were going through similar problems and working with you, you made them the hero. Never make your story about you, your company, your products, your services, and under no circumstances ever in your presentation, show a picture of your headquarters because no one gives a damn. 
you're spot on, Marcus. I think, you know, the most expensive words in business and it's truly taken for granted. And I think this global pandemic has highlighted it is, you know, we've always done it that way. And how many times have we heard that and that comfort zone of using someone you're familiar with and, you know, ask why five times, you know, as you're selling to a customer, you know, ask why, why are they staying with, what are they doing? What is so attractive? What is so sexy about the quality, the service, the speed that they're getting from that incumbent that makes them want to stay? And usually, again, they they will talk and they will keep talking and they will tell you. And they're wanting a different solution, but oftentimes they don't know how. So all of that information is power. And what I think salespeople fail to understand, every conversation is part of that negotiation. And procurement knows that all too well because that's they know it because those internal conversations are usually the most costly that other people are having with a potential supplier or an incumbent supplier. And then it comes to procurement and it becomes an oh shit moment. Well, they gave away this, they gave away that and procurement wasn't involved. So, you know, that's where there is a healthy tension and, you know, it may not sound like the best idea, but get procurement involved because when you can have them along your side and holding your hand, you will end up better. Maybe not today. They may beat you down on price, but longevity wise, it will play to your advantage to have them on your side. Okay. So another couple of observations. If you are the incumbent, when is the wrong time to introduce something new? I don't think there's ever a wrong time. I mean, I think, you know, you you need to do your homework. You know, if there are competing business priorities and it's going to take, you know, resources from your customer, that could potentially be threatening. But if it's going to add value to that customer's business or streamline a process or help them sell more or, you know, improve their bottom line impact... I don't think there is a wrong time. Okay. Do you mind if I challenge you? Sure. Experience tells me that an incumbent that introduces something new at renewal is very likely to create the conditions for it to turn into an RFP or a bid. Mm -hmm. If they introduce something new in the middle of the life cycle, that's certainly from the vendor side, that's more strategically advantageous because the time at renewal, uh, the story at renewal needs to be why what they've implemented already was a good choice. Now, in your experience, have you found that when vendors do come and suddenly, you know, because they want to hang on to the business, they start offering the new shiny object and the magic bullet? It's at that point that you start thinking, well, why haven't you done this before? And maybe we shouldn't go out and speak to other people to see what, if we can get a better deal. Marcus. And I would call those organizations dinosaurs (laughs) because if they're sandbagging and waiting until that opportunity, shame on them. They don't deserve to keep the business, in my opinion. They should be forthright throughout and it should be a collaboration. And they will truly be treated as a vendor 
and not a supplier and not a partner if they're going to exercise those behaviors. Excellent. Okay, so we're in violent agreement. Yeah. Good. Okay. What are the four most common questions you get asked by sales organizations in your training about what works and what doesn't work in procurement? Yeah. So, you know, I'll start with the four questions that most salespeople ask. And that is, what is your timeline? What is your budget? You know, how can I make the customer move faster so I can close this deal? Or how do I retain or grow the business? Or why am I not getting a response? And my answer to all of those questions and my coaching and feedback is those are all tactical. Those are not strategic whatsoever. And everyone selling to that person is asking those questions. Be different, you know, be a partner. You know, like we've talked about, Marcus, it's about doing the homework. Show your authenticity, show empathy, because everyone is struggling with something. Every multinational organization, every matrix organization, large or small, they have problems. So help them solve those problems. And if your solution or your product won't solve it, maybe you have someone in your network that could help them solve that problem. Because as soon as you extend that olive branch, you get equity with that person you're selling to. And they will remember that. And they will come back to you when your time is right or when your you know, product or service is needed. So don't underestimate that. And you know, like we talked about, it, it's articulating your value proposition as it fits into the customer's business. I can't emphasize that enough. That is truly critical because how many ads do we see on social media? It's boom this, boom that. Everything is the same, regardless of your audience. When you tailor your messaging to your customer and you share those customer journeys, as you mentioned, or those white papers, um, or you say, hey, how can I help you build a business case so that you know, we can make a difference in your business? Work alongside them, and that will go a very long way in your business, penetrating that customer as well as, you know, just having trust. And that trust is key. And once that's compromised, it's very, very difficult to get it back. But when you're asking those tactical questions, why would I trust you? Because all you care about is closing the deal. And this is something I really want to drive home if you're listening. The minute you become tactical, you commoditize yourself, you stink of neediness, despair, and poverty. And where you have managers or private equity uh, that are trying to get you to do anything to get a deal over the line at the end of a quarter or a month, it makes you an ass. All it does is it sends the stench of desperation to the prospect. And if they're not ready to buy, they're not going to buy. And when they are ready to buy, they're going to expect that discount of 20, 40, 60, 80%. Uh, you know, I've seen this happen time and time again every month. I have clients who tell me that their bosses are telling them, you know, do whatever you can to get any revenue in before the end of the month or the quarter. And it destroys the relationship. It destroys the equity that you have uh, with your buyers. 
I was speaking to uh, one of uh, my clients yesterday, and he spent seven months building the relationship within the largest account that this company has ever won. And so he won it. It took a year to win it. And then seven months to really extend the relationship, go deep and wide. And his bosses are trying to get him to push deals over the line. He planted his feet and said no, and they put him on a personal improvement plan. What sort of cretin does that other than someone who genuinely doesn't care about the customer? And that sends an awful message because they know that as a business, you don't care about them. And you're in business because of them, not in spite of them. Let's uh, just discuss the value proposition. When I'm teaching people to develop their value proposition, they need to be able to articulate what it is, what's the product or the service that they're selling, uh, what it does and how the product or service will be implemented, how it benefits them. So what are the concrete benefits that the customer will gain? And critically, how it will be measured. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think the last point is really, really critical on how it will be measured because all of those other points that you mentioned feed into that. So have those key performance indicators, have those service level agreements and be forthcoming. Help that business measure those things because that's where you will differentiate yourself when you are in those supplier review meetings. So those quarterly business reviews, when you have those metrics, and have that 360 degree feedback, you will separate yourself from the competition and from other providers within that organization. And that value proposition becomes elevated. So you have a value proposition when you sell, you sign a contract, but that equity is either built or it's lost throughout the duration of that relationship with that customer. So where you position yourself and continuing to do that SWOT analysis that you mentioned, you know, understand what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, what are the opportunities, what are the threats? You don't do that when you're trying to sell only. You do that throughout the duration of your relationship because it will evolve. The marketplace changes, your customer changes, you change. And if your boss, as you mentioned, only cares about increasing that deal at quarter stop or maximizing it, shame on them. Are you working for the right company? It is the question I would ask. And those salespeople, you know, you mentioned the dinosaurs in procurement. There's probably more dinosaurs in sales, frankly, that oh, are God, selling yeah. the, the way they have for 20 and 25 years. And it, it's a shame because there are some really good solutions. There are some really good products in the marketplace that are mismanaged and mispositioned and their messaging is just crap. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I work with a company called Gap in the Matrix and uh, they specialize in identifying why customers will buy and look at the company, the vendor's messaging. And um, we're working on a project at the moment and not one, not single one of their messages is on target for their audience. And is it any wonder that they're 60, 70% behind quota? Because they're just, you know, they're just missing the mark. I'd like to build on something. Um, in terms of the quarterly business reviews, one of the things that we found incredibly powerful is to, as a mandatory part of the relationship, if you're selling complex enterprise deals, is to have quarterly 
value reviews rather than business reviews because QBRs tend to be the vendor showing up and throwing up and putting their stock market stall out there. What we suggest to people is that you have an agreement up front as to how the customer will hold you to account and how you will hold them to account. And you've got critical satisfaction factors that are agreed up front, they're weighted, and then every quarter you're measured and rated against your performance. And then it gives you reset factors that allow you to adjust what you're doing in order to build and improve the service. But also from a long-term perspective, in order to retain that customer. Because if every couple of weeks you're speaking to people in the organization to find out and temperature test how you're doing, every quarter you're meeting with uh, the buying team and the executive team to establish how well you're doing against expectation, and you're constantly improving, then it makes it very difficult for anyone to want you out. And you build loyalty, and then the procurement team and the executive team and the users will give you the inside track when the competition is sniffing around, trying to uh, take your business away from you. Why is it that so few sales organizations even contemplate doing that? And why don't more buying organizations insist on it? I think it's, you know, lack of the um, just being well-rounded from a business perspective. So many sales organizations, manufacturers are working in their silo, procurement's working in their silo, and you've got to break down those silos and look, take your blinders off and look at that value chain connectivity. That is key. And I would challenge one point, you know, around that quarterly value review. I think that's a brilliant idea. You have to do that. But if everything is glowing, you are not being honest. You're not being honest about what you're delivering. And the customer is not being honest about how they are playing with you. And we live in the real world. Nothing is perfect. And when both parties come to the table and are honest, hey, we screwed up here. Or we didn't meet this quality requirement. We didn't meet this service level agreement. Be honest. Because if everything is glowing and that 360 degree feedback shows no bad marks, then it's smoke and mirrors. You are full of BS. And that is not reality. Or you're not taking enough risk which means that you're holding your customer back. Uh, I agree. I think part of setting that arrangement up is that you agree to have constructive conflict and that you have the right to challenge each other. And if you don't have that, then the relationship will very quickly become stale and anodyne. And it's crucial that as a vendor, because you're speaking to probably dozens or hundreds of people like your customer, you've got insight. And if you see them falling behind or becoming a laggard or doing stuff that's self-harming or self-sabotaging, it's your responsibility to raise it with them. And you do them no favors by playing it safe, uh, but you have to have that agreement up front. It's like setting up a prenup. You agree up front what's going to happen at the end, and you agree the terms of engagement and what the boundaries are. And uh, it's critical that you are you do enter into constructive conflict. It shouldn't be a bed of roses. There should be thorns in there. 
And you can have stand-up fights with your customers because I think they value being challenged. The last 17 years, I've learned that you really have to stand up and challenge your customers. If they come to you for hugs and cuddles, you're the wrong supplier. I agree. And I think, you know, in these multinational companies, that's what they've grown accustomed to is having their ego stroked by their suppliers. And this world needs reality and it needs tough love and be provocative, be innovative, because if it's all rainbows and butterflies, then frankly, you don't have the right supplier if they're not challenging you and they're not calling you on the mat because these large organizations need to be called on the mat. And if it doesn't feel good, then that's okay. There's room for growth. And I I think, you know, you have to have that trust. You have to have those, you know, right performance indicators in place and that collaboration. But my coaching to both sides is be provocative. Be provocative in what is measured. Be provocative in the conversations. Because if you're not challenging one another, then what's the point? In 10 years, everything is going to look the same. And that's not good for either side. There's the proverb, if you green, you grow. If you're ripe, you rot. And there are an awful lot of ripe and rotten organizations out there because there isn't that challenge. And also because salespeople, I think, often come to the table with a very bad scarcity mentality because their pipeline is weak. If they were doing their job correctly and they were prioritizing, they weren't going after customers who weren't in their ideal market and they were just focused on their ideal customer profile. They charge premium so that they can devote the time, the money, the resource, the effort to deliver extreme value. Then the customers don't mind paying premium. What they do mind paying premium for is something that is basically feels like a commodity and is a bit of a half-assed delivery. I was speaking to the uh, global head of Palo Alto Networks Customer Services yesterday, and she explained that when she was CIO of a previous company, a week into the job, they discovered that they needed to do a full facelift and rework of their ERP system. And the salesperson who won the business was the one who right from the outset said, Patty, I'm here for you. Whatever happens, I will do what is needed to make sure you come out of this. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. But she kept her promises. And to this day, I think it's about 19 years later, she's still in touch with this salesperson. And of all those salespeople, she's the only one she remembers. And she will step out of a meeting to take her call because she made that much of an impression. And you have to think strategically. And you have to remember that buyers are human beings, living, breathing, sentient human beings. They're not ATM machines that are made up of wetware. Okay, so what I am really curious about is the kind of relationship that procurement should have within the organization and where that goes wrong within the the buyer organization. You know, I think building... Like we talked about, we are human beings and there has to be trust. And the business areas that you support, the categories that you support, you have to have a seat at the table. You have to have a seat at the strategic planning meetings. You have to have a seat 
at the meetings where things go wrong and you're resetting priorities. Procurement has to be that trusted business partner. And it's not that they want to change how you're doing things. They they want to change your thinking. It's that in order to represent the organization properly externally and know the marketplace and know the categories and know what is best for that particular business area, you can't be flying blind. You can't just go to procurement and say, hey, I need to run this RFP or, hey, this supplier is not performing. Um, you know, I need to you know, switch them out or I need to move the business to this alternate supplier. Don't go to procurement when there's a crisis. Include them every step of the way. And like I said before, procurement sees things the way no other department does because they're seeing requests across the entire organization, especially the indirect procurement leader. The manufacturing leader is seeing how the interworkings are happening on the manufacturing side of the business. Indirect, there are so many complications and so many different goods and services being provided from marketing, from GNA services, to information technology. All of those interworkings are connected. And what's GNA? General and administrative. So it's the finance, the HR, um, the typically back office functions, audit. So you, you've touched on something which is near and dear to my heart, because I, I think vendors have this ludicrous idea that people actually lie awake at night dreaming about buying their servers or their routers or their cogs in the machine. And that never happens, and no one will ever buy your product. They never have, they never will, any more than they'll buy your service. You know, no one in the history of humanity has woken up and said, you know what I really want? I want some sales training. There's a reason behind it. And I think what people forget as vendors is that the buyer organization has a collective experience, but those, that collective experience manifests itself as a series of symptoms And they occur at different times and different places in different forms within the organization. And from what I'm hearing you say, it it strikes me that procurement will probably be one of the first places where you start seeing these patterns of behavior coalesce and you start to recognize, ah, we have a problem. And it's our job to help procurement pinpoint the cause. Because very often, you know, certainly in my experience of 35 years selling, buyers almost never understand what the real problem is. Because if they come to us as individual departments, they're just seeing their piece of the picture. So would it be fair to say that procurement has that visibility of, or more often than not, will at least be able to help you identify the root cause of the problem so you can fix it at source? Correct. Yeah. I mean, they see all of the fragmented pieces in those silos and can put the pieces together and they may not fit together, but they can diagnose the problem and say, hey, this is what you need to do here. And this is an after effect in this downstream process or another department. So, you know, there could be market research going on and there could be an upstream impact in marketing and there could be a downstream impact in R&D if you're looking to, you know, change a product. So that full connectivity is really key. And you have all of that 
free, quote unquote, insight within your organization. You don't need to pay McKinsey. You don't need to pay Deloitte. You don't need to pay, you know, name your strategic consulting firm, up $10 million, tap into these resources. And it is so powerful. And the engagement levels will go up and business problems you didn't know you had can be revealed and then prevented downstream. And the problem, and I I don't want to get on a tangent, but executives feel like I will listen if I pay for this advice from these strategic consulting firms. All they are doing are interviewing your people and regurgitating what they said. They're not coming up with this whiz-bang new idea. So listen to your people. And hallelujah. <laughs> and it's just, it's amazing. And, you know, if this pandemic has revealed anything, these executives are going to procurement and saying, what is in this contract? What are these payment terms? What is my force majeure language? What? And before they just treat it, you know, not every organization, but in a lot of organizations, hey, I just need procurement to sign this, or I just need procurement to negotiate this. Guess what? Procurement is more than a tactical order taker and paper pusher. Look at them for what they are, and you will learn a lot about your business. Okay, so let me extrapolate some ideas from this. The first thing is that procurement should be a business enabler. It's not a deal obstructor, uh, if it's used correctly. Secondly, the value, which again, you should see in your customers' interactions with your sales teams, your call centers, is in the small data, the unfiltered, spontaneous conversations that your salespeople are having with customers, where they're telling you how to sell to them, what they want to buy, what frustrates them. Equally, you should be using that small data that occurs within your own organization, listening to procurement, but also listening to your staff. And again, this is where I have a couple of major bugbears. The first one is in the amount of money that is utterly pissed up the wall by marketing because they don't talk to customers. And so they come up, and same with product development folk, they come up with some newfangled idea and having not spoken to customer, what they do is they produce the cucumber cover. So for those of you in America who uh, aren't familiar with this, we have Dragon's Den, which is like Shark Tank. And there was a guy who turned up and he was very affable and all the investors uh, loved him. And he came up with this plastic thing in green that you shove on the end of the cucumber to stop it go wrinkly. And one of the investors said, well, I've got a simple solution and took a knife and chopped the end off. So this was an elegant solution to a problem that didn't exist, which a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of vendors are guilty of doing. Second thing, if you are going to speak to your people, then make sure that you pay attention to what they've told you and you tell them what action you're going to take as a result of having spoken to them. And this is where employment surveys, I think, are a total waste of money because most organizations are trying to just get their NPS score up uh, because they think that somehow that reflects how good an organization they are. Um, NPS 
is um, a, basically a masturbatory activity for most people because it doesn't really give you the insight in the same way that uh, using big data and spending a fortune on technology to enable your sales and marketing where it doesn't move the needle is a pointless exercise. So what advice would you give to C-level executives when they're thinking about making investment decisions around the use of small data? Yeah, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, Marcus. You cannot underestimate the power of that small data and capitalizing on it, extrapolating it, and, you know, having those real conversations and those follow-up conversations. Because you hire these employees for a reason. You hire the best and brightest for a reason. Don't buy the information elsewhere. Don't pay someone else to extrapolate it. You have everything you need internally. So use the, you have an analytics team. Most companies have an analytics team. Use that information. And I'd say stop putting your head in the sand and thinking because you're talking to someone with a fancy title at a fancy company that you're getting a solution or you know an answer that is better than what you have in-house. I think this is the fatal flaw, as you said, with the MPS and these engagement surveys, is that if I pay for it, I will be told what I want to hear. Bullshit, <laughs> right? You have the answers internally, and maybe they're not what you want to hear. Maybe you are doing some really good things. Listen to those too. But if you really want to innovate and you want to excel, then you need to hear those tough messages. Any relationship, I mean, any marriage, any, you know, parent-child relationship, it, it comes with the tough conversations and it comes with the good conversations. So capitalize on all aspects of those and leverage all of that data. Data is so powerful. And I listened to one of your other podcasts and, you know, it was a lady in the healthcare sector and all of her survey data. Absolutely. Right? And same thing goes with internal employee information. You can solve every problem you have if you would just listen and apply those learnings with internally. Again, I couldn't agree. That interview with Amy Brown was really insightful because in the healthcare sector in the US, um, her clients were spending 40% of their time offering tech support to uh, people who are struggling to navigate their website. I mean, that's 40% production capability lost immediately just because you weren't listening to your customers. If you listen to the customer, I interviewed Karen Mangia as well from Salesforce, and that was fascinating because she had a lady who came to her She'd done all their research. They were about to launch a product. And the board decided that they didn't want to listen to what the customers were going to say. The customers were saying, we don't see you in this space. If you launch this product, we will not buy it. And the CEO uh, stood up and said, beat his chest and said, I'm making a captain's call. Launched the product anyway, and it failed within six months. And you know, your employees, your staff, your suppliers, you've got to talk to them as well. I do a lot of work in the channel. And one of the things that really strikes me is just how deaf and blind most vendors are to what their partners are saying to them, because they don't treat them well as partners. They see them as a get out of sales free card. Um, And that's crazy. What are your thoughts? 
Agree. I, I think that the channel is broken. The incentives are oftentimes broken. And it has to be that 360 degree feedback relationship. Learning from one another is truly critical and measuring one another, measuring the performance, measuring the results. How did you get there? And, you know, the little bits of data that you mentioned, the anecdotes, the feedback are just as critical as the big data. Because if you're not paying attention to the little data, then who cares what the big data says? You're just spending even more money to mine that big data. To drive that point home, I uh, was at a dinner with Forrester at Christmas last year, and the head of big data said that only 7% of companies were using big data effectively. Now, that means 93% of you are not. Think about how much money you are squandering on big data projects, because you haven't got a clue what to do with it. The little data is there. Use AI analytics to capture that information. Under COVID, every single conversation potentially is a learning opportunity. Every sales call, every customer service call, every account management call, every internal call could be used to capture that information. And that technology is out there today. And what it should, it's difficult to track that stuff because of the volume. But with AI, in 10 milliseconds, you can have the analytics done. And you know, wh why are you not using that? So, okay, let, let's go a little bit further. In technology, no single vendor, unless you are, I don't know, an IBM or someone like that, 99.8% of vendors are bit players. And they are just one part of the technology stack. And if you think that you can sell your email security system or your CRM system without engaging either with partners or the rest of the organization to understand where you fit as a, a cog in the overall strategy, you are in for a horrific next few years. And it's the partners who generally have those strategic relationships. If you are not working with those partners and engaging them to help you get into procurement and see what that bigger picture is, you're toast. Is that fair? Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, I, I think these large IT organizations have so many priorities, so many objectives, so many issues that fly in every day that they can't see the forest through the trees. And talking with procurement, you can diagnose problems, you can prevent problems, you can connect the dots that other areas have not connected. And you cannot underestimate the power of that. And the strategic relationships, the strategic partnerships in this space are truly key. And having been in very, very large multinational organizations for 20 years, the greed that exists in these companies that you mentioned, it is appalling because... Yeah. The margins are egregious, and not to say they don't have good solutions and they don't have good people. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is 
that they have to take their blinders off and they truly need to separate themselves from their competition and solve these problems, be agile, stop being fat and happy, be agile, be quick and automate where you can automate, solve these problems, stop trying to stretch timelines. We have too much access to AI, to machine learning, to robotics in this day and age to see the all these SOWs, all, you know, like you said, that stack upon stack upon stack where it should be an integrated solution. And there's a real opportunity, I think, now for someone to step up in that space and say, hey, we are going to differentiate ourselves from the way we used to do business and we are going to collaborate. We are going to solve your problems. We are going to speed timelines. We are going to leverage this technology and we're going to kick ass and take names. There is a real opportunity. I'm seeing this in tiny pockets and I'll give you a really fabulous example of this, two fabulous examples of this. I interviewed Patty Hatter um, yesterday, who uh, is the head of customer service for Palo Alto. And she implemented a change in their pricing model. Mm -hmm. And the pricing model moved from time and materials to outcome-based. And so there's a cafeteria menu, and you can have ABC for X dollars, ABCDEF for Y dollars, ABCDFGHIJ for uh, Z dollars. Now, impact of that was a 98% increase in revenue in Q4. That's astronomical. I mean, think about this. This is Palo Alto Networks. It's not some uh, shitty mom and pop outfit out of backwater Arkansas. Yeah, this is a serious player. And in their professional services team, that's what they did. I came across another really good shining example of genius as well, where they were uh, an ERP vendor, and again, in the professional services team. And uh, what they did was um, you know, they, they focused on filling the top of the funnel so they had a strong pipeline. And that way they could walk away or delay any single opportunity. And then when the buyer said, well, look, we'll wait till the end of the quarter when you're doing a fireside sale, then they made the very good case, which is, Jill, you can do that, but you're still not going to get the discount. But tell me this, if you order at the end of the quarter, who do you think is going to be working on your project at the beginning of the next one? Why don't you order now at list? We'll give you a little bit of uh, leeway. And then you get our A-team guaranteed to do the implementation. Because who wants to spend 17 million pounds on a project that's being delivered by B minus C and D players? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I have seen, which flabbergasts me, is the way senior leadership in a lot of these tech, uh, large tech vendors think. So for example, there's one vendor that if the professional services are delivered by a partner, the salesperson doesn't get comped on it. So they have to use their own professional services team. So they put themselves in direct competition with their channel. Now, why would anybody choose to do that other than short-term greed? Because it's not good for the customer. No, I mean, yeah, they're, they're looking to make their numbers and check the box and they're being very tactical, like we talked about. And I think tactical thinking, tactical actions, 
will bury people and they don't realize it, but they are digging their own grave. So let's raise uh, another bugbear that I have. How often were you dealing with tech companies who were private equity or VC backed? A few. Okay. Because one of the things that I see in those companies is because they are very tactical and they're run by soulless asses who effectively don't care about the longevity of the company and they don't care about the customers, is that they have this view that what they should be doing is making their number no matter what. And so they drive the wrong tactical behavior, which is selfish. They churn and burn their sales team. They burn them out very quickly. And that way, you don't ever develop long-term relationships with the buying team. And net result of that is that even if they do buy from you, you're squeezed on price. There's always the fireside sale. And you end up taking business from anybody instead of the right customers. And you take business from business you should have walked away from. As a buying professional, when you see that kind of behavior, what alarm bells does that raise? So the word that pops in my mind is caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware, right? So you need to do your homework and you need to structure. If if you have to work with that company, you need to structure the deal so that it has the right incentives, the right accountability, and you're not paying for a pile of garbage at the end of the day. And most of the PE companies and technology companies I've worked with are SaaS solutions. So you have to have the right service level agreement in place. You have to have the right key performance indicators. And you you should have milestone payments. You're not paying unless you see X or Y results. And I think that is really key. And you have the leverage, right? Because they're desperate to have the deal. So you should push for the right terms within that contract. Fair point. Jill, we've hit the top of the hour, uh, sadly, because I could talk to you for hours. Tell me this, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What am I wrestling with? You know, I I think, um, you know, what we talked about, the old way of selling into procurement and supply chain must change. You know, so I've made it my mission and my purpose to educate, to arm, and to really elevate that relation, that working relationship. Because procurement and supply chain, they're they're not the bad guys here. So, you know, I, I really think that we're on the brink of something truly special and magical that can happen. And that may sound corny. But it, it, there's an opportunity because everyone is selling something. And at some point in time, working with large companies, you must work with procurement. So, you know, if that can maximize both sides of the table, maximize, you know, the impact on the customer and maximize the margin and um, the value for the seller, that is great. And, you know, we, we've hit on that multiple times here. But if you are selling a good or service that is valuable, you know, knowing how to do so is truly critical in this global economy that we live in today. So, you know, that, that's what I'm wrestling with because 
as we started out, you know, both sides are misunderstood. So how do you bridge that gap? So they're not misunderstood because we are all human and one side may be ill-incented, you know, to do certain things. The other side is ill-incented. So how do you bridge that gap? And you both can be on the same team and you both can come out smiling. Now, will you always be smiling? No, we're humans, right? (laughs) But you want to bring those parties together so that they are smiling at some point in time and more so than not throughout the duration of the the engagement. Absolutely. I mean, selling is getting your fees on your terms and both sides walk away happy and satisfied eventually. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going in uh, and just getting lists because there's a whole load of soft value that can be derived that's more valuable than cash. And if you can find a way to help both sides get those needs met, then you're doing a good job. Because I'm also on a mission, which is to modernize the sales profession, because I also believe we're on the cusp of a renaissance. And the right kind of technology applied well in the context of human-to-human relationships is incredibly potent. But what I see time and again is technology getting between the uh, vendors and uh, the buyers and dehumanizing and distancing that process. That's a real problem. Okay, tell me this. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and whisper in the idiot Jill's ear age 23, what advice would you give her? And it doesn't have to be about regret or blame, but I'm just curious, what choice bit of advice would you whisper to her? Yeah, so I think when we are young, we are sensitive, right? Overly sensitive. And even when we are confident, even when, you know, maybe, you know, we position ourselves better than others, my coaching would be save a lot of money because the the, the time value of money and compound interest, you cannot get back in your 30s, in your 40s, or in your 50s. So stop being greedy and stop blowing money and save it so that you're in a position when you are 40, that you can make different decisions in your life. I wish Um, I'd listened to you when I was 23. (laughs) You know, I mentor and coach a lot of people, but it's so powerful because then you can, you know, start to live your life differently and make a positive impact. So, you know, that's, I think the top one and, you know, around the sensitivity, stop freaking worrying about what other people think. It does not matter. And, you know, I spent so much of my career trying to climb the corporate ladder, trying to check all these boxes. And did I learn a lot? Yes. Would I have had a a better, more balanced, happier life? Yes. You know, so just, I think now with social media, these young people, it's, thank God I didn't have any of that when I was younger. But, you know, we all, there were different challenges then. But, you know, stop, stop worrying about what other people think. And Listen to your elders because we have wisdom that we're willing to impart, you know, on younger people. And I think I did have some very strong mentors and they were invaluable. And you need mentors in the business professional world and you need mentors in life because it all melds together. And some of, you know, the life coaching you'll get 
may not be the best business coaching. So, so you need a well-rounded set of mentors. So, you know, th- those golden ticket items, money is the path to freedom. And people think money is the root of all evil. They're full of it. It's not. It is the path to freedom. And the smarter you are with it when you're younger, it will open the door to many opportunities you never knew existed. Absolutely. And again, don't be afraid to ask for help. People like offering help. We're social uh, primates. Uh, We derive enormous personal satisfaction from helping people. I probably have five, six people a week reaching out and asking me for help, and I'm very happy to give it. And it it really, I I see it as um, my responsibility to give back. And if someone says no, find someone else. And there's no shame in asking for help. Being vulnerable enough to do that is a massive act of courage. And if you fail, it's just role failure. It's not a personality defect. And learn to let go of that, your ego, and learn to let go of your old past hurts. Um, But easier said than done. Okay, tell me this. What what are you watching, reading, listening to that you would recommend other people pay heed to? Yeah, so who would I recommend they listen to from a podcast and reading perspective? Ed Millette. He is really good. He's all over social media. He's got a podcast as well. He has all kinds of leaders, all kinds of entrepreneurs on his podcast, great life advice as well. So he kind of hits a lot of different buckets. Craig Rochelle has a great leadership podcast that hits on, you know, success, you know, from multiple different angles um, and truly being a servant leader, which I think is, is key. Gary V. Everyone's probably heard of Gary V. He's very in your face, but you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, he has great advice just on following your gut and following your passion and really just giving what other people think the middle finger, which I really think is much needed in the world today because there's just so much noise. And I'll leave it at that. Excellent. Then, you know, I think your podcast is great as well, you know, but yeah, there's an art of procurement podcast. that's good for people that are in the procurement space, but yeah, I, you know, I I think there's a lot of great information out there. We just need to discern and digest, you know, what, what fits for us. But for me, those are some key leaders that have, um, you know, played a role in my success. And I'd say my, my personal grounding because we can get wrapped around the axle on a lot of stuff. Um, (laughs) It's just not worth it. (laughs) Agreed. Excellent. Jill, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Jill Robbins, and on my website, businessfierce.com. I publish a blog regularly, and I post on LinkedIn regularly, um, and I'd be happy to chat with you. Brilliant. Jill Robbins, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to be a guest or you think you know someone who would be a great guest, then please email me at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.